69 million US dollars. Imagine paying that for an artwork and not actually getting anything for it. Well, nothing physical anyway. You get a digital-only artwork, but still, everyone else can log on and see it. This week on Download This Show, welcome to the incredibly weird world of non-fungible tokens. People paying big money for a token that insists they own something, but nothing really stopping others from well, seeing and accessing it. We're talking about everything from a tweet to an animated GIF, even a new Kings of Leon album are being turned into NFTs. Is it just an elaborate scam or is it the future of owning things? Also on the show, a handheld device that may mean you never have to wash clothes again or even change out of them, but is it real science and will you still want to be friends with old Johnny No Change afterwards? Plus, is Trump making a return to social media? And just how do the likes of Netflix and Amazon deal with censorship around the globe? Is it a fundamental challenge for tech companies built on a very Western view of the world? All that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show and joining us in studio. I have two guests in studio. This is the first time in like a gazillion years this has happened. Uh, from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast, amongst many, many other things. Ray Johnson, I have missed having you in the studio. Welcome back. This is beautiful and surreal and I'm so happy to be here. I don't have the words for it. And my job is words. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Welcome to my world. And joining us in our Melbourne studios, uh, reporter extraordinaire, because I don't think the word reporter is exciting enough with The Guardian. Josh Taylor, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. I'm so happy to be in the Melbourne studio. It's it's looking very nice. Are you in uh, Patricia Carvelis' studio, Buddy James? I am. I can't promise any dancers anytime soon, but we'll see. <laughs> you failed me for the last time, Taylor. All right. There is so much that's happened. So the last couple of weeks we've had um, deep dives on issues, but so much has happened that uh, we did need to kind of get back into the, the tech news cycle. And there is a three-letter acronym that has permeated the internet like a disease. What the hell? Uh, NFTs. Ray, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> what is an NFT? Why has it attracted so much attention? Well, you say it's like a disease and it kind of sounds like a disease because <laughs> NFT actually stands for non-fungible token. And the word fungible is one I've had to learn in the last couple of months, uh, which essentially means that, say, for example, you've got currency, you've got a $10 I do. note. I have, that, I have that. Right. I mean, I don't have cash. Nobody has cash anymore, but I like the idea. It is considered fungible because it can be traded for something of, of similar value. They're, they're interchangeable with each other. You know, two $10 notes are worth the same thing. You know, two $5 notes are worth a $10 note. If something is non-fungible, it means that there's nothing out there like it. You can't trade it for anything else. It is completely unique. And what a non-fungible token is, it's basically a way of making something digital valuable by making it rare. It's basically trying to solve a, a, a non-existent problem. That, that <laughs> there, was, there was a lack of scarcity on the internet, so suddenly we have to create scarcity on the internet. And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm not entirely buying into the hype at this stage as it probably comes across in how I'm talking about it. But I think it's worth pointing out as well, we kind of need to go back a bit because yes. when you 
create a non-fungible token of, of something and then sell it to someone. They do receive the digital files. So in the Kings of Leon's case, you know, you, you get the album and then you get the token. And the token is the bit that says, I own this and I can therefore sell this. And it lives in your digital wallet alongside your other cryptocurrency because it exists on the blockchain like other cryptocurrencies. There is absolutely nothing stopping anyone else from still being able to look at, listen to, otherwise engage with that digital artwork. Basically what you have is just bragging rights, valuable bragging rights that you own something. And I don't think this can be evidenced enough. I I look at Jack Dorsey, who has created a non-fungible token of his tweet. So this is the guy that uh, co-founded Twitter and he's he's managed to turn his original tweet, the beginning of Twitter, into a non-fungible token. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're listening to this on the podcast, you can't see my face because it's cringing up into like confused, annoyed, possibly constipated, who can say. Josh, I don't understand how if everybody in the world can access a thing by paying a certain amount of money or cryptocurrency, you can define owning something when everyone still has access to it. Can, like, has anybody actually made a cogent argument for how that works, Josh? I think the only sort of comparison that I've seen that maybe gets close to what we're looking at is basketball or baseball cards where there is a scarcity of those and, and people want to trade them and, and have a certain one and, you know, you, everyone might have access to the photo of that, but, you know, only a certain one has like a, a very shiny gold fringe or something like that and, and that makes them feel like they're getting much more worth out of it. Apart from that, I don't know. I, I think with a lot of these new technological things, you kind of have to need to, um, you know, wait a while and see how they fall out. You know, um, Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency have sort of come along in, in the past few years. Who would have thought before last year that QR codes would have been something okay. we would have yeah. all been using? <laughs> One of the interesting applications I saw people sort of talking about uh, in terms of NFT was potentially... Um, you know, when women get sent unsolicited dick pics, they might um, create a non-fungible token out of those and therefore they would own the, the rights to that image. I and love then, that so much. Um, turn it on the, on the person who sent it to them. All right, so all that's... right, all right. I, I play that out for me, Ray. How do you take an unsolicited <laughs> piece of a person's appendage and do you turn it into something that you can non-funge? Well, this is the thing. You is that don't a verb, have... non-funge? No, Never mind, yeah. carry on. <laughs> You can tokenize, you can, the the process is actually called minting and there are companies that will mint things for you. You can even just like at tweet a company underneath another tweet and be like, hey, minting company, mint this tweet for me, turn it into an NFT, I own this now. You don't have to be the person that has produced the artwork, the music, whatever it else it is that you are selling to be able to tokenize it to mint it and then sell it and this is where we're gonna run in to so many problems but hold on what does the minting company actually do then they create the token that exists on the blockchain they're the middleman so what's the token the token is the little thing with all of the the numbers on it that lives inside your digital wallet next to your cryptocurrency to say that you own that thing what is, okay, okay, I'm going to go with a practical example because I feel like I'm uh, my head is now so far up my own rear end <laughs> I can only barely navigate where I am right now. Josh, let's just take the Jack Dorsey example. So Jack Dorsey, mm. as we mentioned earlier, he is the, um, the co-founder of Twitter. He has turned his original tweet, the very first tweet, into a non-fungible token. It's a terrible mm. tweet, by the way. Yeah, it's a nonsense tweet. But if I have obtained the non-fungible token for the original tweet that Jack Dorsey tweeted, 
what happens if Jack Dorsey then deletes the tweet? What is the value of the token, Ray? You then have the certificate that he's issuing to say you owned my first tweet and you still have the token. But but what is the token worth? The token is worth whatever someone will buy it for, Mark, mm. and this is why NFTs likely have no future. I'm going to go on record <laughs> and say it right here. Do you know when people, like, casually say in conversation as a side, this is like capitalism? Yes. This is broken yep. capitalism. Yes, this is completely <laughs> broken capitalism. And the only... And this is entirely unregulated as well. Um, it needs I've to be I've given up on regulation <laughs> on the internet. I mean, what is this, France? But I think what we are going to see is some rules put in place around, you know, copyright and IP and actual ownership of art, digital art on the internet, when you do get Disney's lawyers jumping in to be like, actually, I don't want you to be making NFTs of Star Wars, of Marvel Universe, and then making money from you know, properties that they effectively own. I feel like this topic is going to give me a migraine for many, many, many months <laughs> ahead. But Josh, just quickly before we move on, what is the aspect of the NFT trend you think is worth paying attention to that is likely to, to kind of catch on, if any at all? I think maybe in the sort of the artistic realm where they've constantly struggled to figure out how to effectively how to pay artists and how fans can show their support for artists. A lot of that's coming through Patreons now. Um, a lot of people are sort of, you know, there's a big push on vinyl. A lot of people are, are buying through iTunes or something like that when you can stream it for free. This this might just sort of work itself into that ecosystem as a way to reward the artists that you support and sort of have something that you feel connects them to the artist. But beyond that, I think it's just a little uh, bit of uh, capitalist uh, nonsense. <laughs> and for you, Ray, is there any part of this we should be paying attention to? I think that we really should be paying attention to the environmental aspect of this as well. Oh, I know yeah. that it's not a positive point. But, you know, when we look at even Bitcoin, for example, the amount of energy that Bitcoin takes to just exist is more than the Ukraine and Argentina at the moment. Together so, or separate? Or? No, no, separate. Okay. But, you know. <laughs> Sorry. I'm impressed that you had an answer to that. I'd be like, uh, question under notice. Uh, so, you know, and this is another thing that exists on the blockchain is going to take up a lot of resources and stop, you know, people building PCs to play video games, being able to have access to decent GPUs. So I think it's nonsense. Download this show is what you're listening to. You are hearing the voices of Josh Taylor from The Guardian and Ray Johnson from Queens of the Drone Age podcast, amongst many other things. Mark Fennell is my name. And this is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture and <laughs> Donald Trump. It's been, it's been ages since I've said that name on this show. Uh, it turns out he might be planning a return to social media, but not as we know it, Josh. What's he planning to do that we're so aware of? He's talking about potentially, you know, in the, in the next few months, launching his own social media service. And, that, and that's sort of about the extent of what we really know about it. It's not really clear how it's going to work, what's, what it's going to do. It's just that he is, at the moment, not able to be on any social media platform. So he's basically packed his bag up and said, I'm going to launch my own media, social media service. Um, what form that takes, you know, it probably will look probably, I guess, maybe a bit more like Parler mm. than, than Twitter or something like that. And I think the hallmark of what they'll he'll be attempting to sell if it if it ever, ever gets to the stage where they're actually going to make a website will be that uh, it will be uncensored and you won't have your political opinion silenced because that will be, you know, his... his um, I guess the thing that he lives, he, he wants to be known for going forward. That you know, the the person who was silenced by the big tech companies, and and that's that's how he's going to try and wade himself back into the national debate. But I mean, you mentioned it in there. Parler kind of emerged out of the last few years as the sort of the ultra free speech to the point of potential hate speech <laughs> um, platform. Why doesn't Parler already work for him, Ray? 
Well, you know, Parlour's run into its own problems as well. You know, it's having problems finding people to host it. It's As these platforms become bigger and bigger, they run into the same problems that the existing social media platforms run into. And that is, as you mentioned, you know, they fall into the hate speech category and people don't really want to be supporting bigotry and inciting violence. Some people. people. (laughs) Let's qualify that one. It's it's pretty rare to find companies who provide the services that these platforms require to run that are willing to back them. Let's put it that way. Very delicately put. There's been something of a conflict, Ray, between uh, the Indian government, particularly its censorship department, and big internet streaming companies like your Netflixes and Amazons. Exactly what's transpired? Yeah, so the big streaming companies like Netflix and, and Amazon have come into India, which has been under government regulation as to what it can put in movies and on television programs. And you know, it has to not be offensive you know, religiously or, or culturally in any kind of way. And it, and it is censored and it is overseen by the government. These streaming services came in and they've provided a platform for filmmakers and, and creators of television shows to not be bound by those rules because the streaming services didn't fall within the remit of that government department until November last year when they kind of got swept under their wing and now we're starting to see measures come into place to effectively censor what is happening on Netflix and Amazon as well. This is an interesting development in something that's sort of been happening all around the world, which is as film and television moves into an online space, it's no longer taking up publicly owned spectrum, which is usually the mechanic with which governments regulate content. Different countries are tackling that in different ways. And you see that play out here with the debate about whether or not um, streaming companies in Australia should have things like Australian content quotas and things like that. So Josh, exactly what is happening with the filmmakers? How are they being limited? So they're getting a lot of uh, police complaints from people who are sort of offended against the uh, by the content. And, you know, there's there's been accusations of, you know, deliberate deliberate or malicious acts, intent to cause outrage over um, religious feelings. And, you know, there's this concern that um, the the Indian government might now, or they have actually announced new rules um, and guidelines saying that they, they can ban particular themes that they're, you know, culturally or religiously sensitive. So, um, yeah, it... it it's one, it, as you were saying before, it's one of those things that I think about a lot when, whenever we're looking at regulation of the tech companies in Australia, and, and often that is cheered on, like increasingly it is cheered on because, the, you know, the tech companies are the big bad uh, here a lot of the time now. Um, but you've got to think, you know, even though if you might agree with what they're doing in Australia in terms of regulation, that in the countries that they operate around the world, they have to comply with the laws in which they operate. So that can mean a vast range of different things. And, and um, you know, whether they're seeking to impose their own values in those countries in which they operate, you know, they, they, they tread a fine line between what um, we might expect them to do and what they can actually do within those countries if they want to continue working in there. Part of me is still a little bit confused as to how it is that, you know, major tech companies whose servers are often spread all around the world do end up falling under the legislation of, of, of countries like India and indeed Australia, like exactly how that they end up having to pay attention to local laws. I'm, I'm fascinated by exactly how that plays out, Josh. Oh, I can't really speak, uh, speak to the Indian situation specifically, but in Australia, you know, if you have a user within Australia, then you do fall under Australian law. If you're broadcasting, well, you know, the content laws that um, apply in Australia apply to Netflix and, and things like that. It, they had to actually modify the the um, content regime in Australia to allow Netflix to to be able to, you know, 
publish as much content as they want without having to go through and get everything rated all the time because that's a you know that's a lot of rating that they have to do if they, mm. they were going to go through that process so uh, they they do have to operate w- within the laws of the of the country that they're, they're in if they want to continue operating and i think that you know it's one of those compromises that these companies make. You know, India is not a market that any tech company or any company really can ignore now if they want to compete globally. It's such a huge market, and and increasingly so. So, uh, like, if they, you know, they have to make decisions about what they're willing to try and push the line on and what they're going to have to sort of curb in in order to appease the government that they're doing the right thing. Yeah, and they're hoping to get 100 million more subscribers out of India as well. So mm. they're going to want to be delivering content mm. that you know, can be shown in that country. One of the things I always find fascinating is modern Silicon Valley technology companies often carry with them a philosophy that is deeply rooted in a very American world of free speech and ideas that are underpinned by a very American idea of free speech. Mm. And actually when they start exporting those services around the world, sometimes they come up against cultures which don't value that. And, and you know, even here in Australia, right, we, like our laws around defamation and free speech are really quite different to what you get in the US, the UK and other parts of the world. And certainly when companies have tried to launch in China, for example, they often, you know, come up against a brick wall and some of them decide it's not worth, not worth it, even though there's an incredible number of people there and an enormous amount of money to be made. I'm interested to know whether you think Amazon and Netflix are managing that cultural sensitivity, let's call it that for lack of a better term, well, Ray, because it's complicated what they're being asked to do here and it's complicated. On just on a purely cultural level, how well do you think they're, they're walking that line based on what we've seen out of these last few cases? Yeah, I think it's worth noting that you know Netflix has gone into India and engaged the services of Indian filmmakers to create the content that they wanted to create to be able to reflect how they see India and how they see their lives and that that is not something that they see currently being you know, portrayed on the government-mandated television. And we're seeing coming out of that incredible, you know, international Emmy award-winning TV series, you know, subjects that have not been tackled in Indian media in the past. You're seeing filmmakers that have been, you know, walled out of Bollywood, for example, Mm. which is accused of just rampant nepotism. You're seeing these creatives be able to work in a freer space and they've provided a platform for that and they've allowed that level of free speech. And I think it's worth noting that nothing's been banned yet. Even though the government has come out and said, look, we're going to put these rules around it, you have to appoint someone that responds to any complaints about your content within 14 days of receiving it, which imagine that. Imagine having to get back to all of India complaining about your content within 14 days. I think they're going to have to hire more than one person for that. Uh, So I, I think... They're approaching it in the right way in the sense that they are engaging people that live there to create that content. They're not just running on in with with Americanised content and going, this is what you need to have on your televisions now today. So I I think it's a tricky line to walk, though, because when you do have filmmakers that are creating content that is offensive to cultural sensitivities, that is offensive to majority religions in countries, there's always going to be some backlash. It's it's a difficult one to manage. That's a super interesting point. Josh, what do you think? It is interesting. I think, you know, the the idea that that 
tech companies are, you know, these libertarian utopias is changing somewhat in the, in the past few years. I think you're seeing more and more tech companies saying, no, we need to be regulated. We need to have regulation around what we're doing. They've sort of come to the understanding that they don't want to be the ones who are making the decisions, particularly around issues of free speech themselves. They don't want, I mean, Facebook has fought against being considered a moderation company for so long, and it is effectively <laughs> a moderation company. Um, that they are saying, you know, you set the laws and we will operate within, you know, within reason in the laws that we, which we're operating. The only time I've, I've seen them push back on that recently was through the news media bargaining code where they, mm. you know, threatened to pull out of the country entirely. And that was just because they had to pay money. So uh, <laughs> it, it seems to be more a financial decision rather than, um, you know, whether they're actually... Um, they don't. They don't want to be the ones who are the arbiters of free speech, essentially, and they they basically leave it up to the governments, and then they work within those systems. It's really highlighting some of the fault lines in our internet experience, isn't it? A lot of the the internet that we use is built on a certain set of beliefs and a certain set of philosophies that actually clash in really interesting ways around the world. And I I, I think how we emerged out of the news bargaining code was a really interesting example of, I guess, what we, or at least the federal government value and who they value and, and, and which audiences and which media companies they value, I think, to some <laughs> extent as well. And I think it, it's, uh, it's one of those fascinating kind of fault lines where you get a real clear sense of, of just what makes us similar on the internet around the world and what makes us very, very different. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week, Ray Johnson from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast and Josh Taylor, who's a reporter extraordinaire, not merely a reporter, <laughs> extraordinaire with The Guardian. And I left the most fun the last. Um, there is a, a video doing the rounds at the moment which depicts a handheld device that glows blue that claims to be a handheld cleaner. I was about to try and explain what it does, but then I realised I have no concept of what it does. And indeed, whether or not it is real science or fake science, and that is why I have our two guests here this week. Ray Johnson, uh, explain to me what it claims to do first. It's real science. I just have to come out here and say Mate, this I was is real building science. up to it. I was building, I mean, I was going to do like a whole reveal thing. It's going to be like Mythbusters. All right, so tell me what it is, what is it, what does it do and tell me the real science behind it. Okay, so basically it emits room temperature plasma, which is a, a gas that's had a bunch of molecules and, and electrons pulled out of it and it creates effectively ozone, which can neutralise the odour smell. So it breaks down the bacteria that exists in clothes to be able to stop them from smelling. So much to my horror, it won't actually remove the coffee stain that I regularly spill down the front of my clothes just before an important meeting, mm -hmm. but it will stop your clothes from stinking. So it's a good gift for teenagers. So just to describe the, the video we're looking at right here. So uh, it, it, uh, the best example I can use is that it looks like a tricorder from Star Trek in the sense of how, like, it glows. And the guy is kind of, you know, it's about the size of a, it's like, like a glasses case and the guy is kind of waving it over his body and it looks very Star Trek, Josh. Is this the sort of thing that you think will take off? It looks like a UV light to me, you know, when they're looking at crime scenes and trying to look at stains and things <laughs> like that. That's... Star Trek CSI. <laughs> um, I I was thinking about this and I, you know, there's, there's that sort of old wives tale is probably not a great term to use, but about you put your jeans in the freezer to get the, the odours out of them if you want to keep wearing them because, you know, we're discouraged from washing our jeans all that often. So I think in, in those circumstances it can potentially be useful, but... I think maybe more broadly, I don't know, 
I, I've, you know, everyone's been locked at home for a year. Everyone's, <laughs> um, you know, wearing the same clothes all the time. But I, you know, just do a load of washing. It's not that no, hard. <laughs> no. See, the good thing about this is that we don't actually need to be washing our clothes as much as <laughs> we've been told that we need to wash our clothes. This is this is big washing it's... liquid coming into our lives, <laughs> demanding that we, we launder the things. Dynamo right open. More often, our body, our actual bodies, when we sweat, that doesn't smell. We don't smell instantly. It's when it attracts. Oh, speak bac- for yourself. No, it's the bacteria <laughs> that it attracts that ends up smelling. So if we wear fabrics that are you know, made out of you know, fibers like wool, which don't attract bacteria and that allow that sweat to evaporate really quickly, you don't end up smelling as much. So you mm-hmm. can wear your clothes for longer. That's why you don't need to wash, you know, your wool jumpers or your merino t-shirts as often as you do a straight-up cotton. And one of the things about this gadget that's super cool is that it can extend the time between you need to wash stuff. You can wait for when you just straight up spill clothes on it. And that's why your jeans don't smell after you pull them out of the freezer too, because it's killed the bacteria that's causing the smell. It's all legit. You know, 17% of your water usage in your home is straight up from washing clothes. I have two children. It's definitely like <laughs> 70 or 80%. That's yeah, if take- you're one person. <laughs> yeah, we, we've, we really don't need to be washing our clothes as much as we've been told we do. I was going to say, I think it's quite interesting that the company that's developing this, you know, it's a, it's a big brand. It's, it's Bosch. This up on- you can say it. It's Bosch. <laughs> <laughs> We're this, on the ABC. But- criticism right here. <laughs> um, it, have put it up on a Kickstarter to effectively get people to fund the development of it. I thought, you know, they'd have enough money to be able to do it themselves, but maybe that's a way of gauging public interest in it as well rather I, than I'd say at this stage, market. Kickstarter is more a marketing platform than Absolutely. it is a fundraising platform. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting that they've they've pegged the price at sort of you know it's about two hundred US dollars thereabouts. It seems a reasonable price point for it, right? Because it's the sort of thing that like if it if it was much cheaper, you wouldn't think it would work, and if it was much more expensive, you'd be like, "Ah, eh, not too hard. I'm just going to use the dish." Uh, I was going to say the dishwasher. Uh, just use the washer. Uh, like, what do you do? You think the price point would place it at somewhere that actually people would use it, right? I think you'd get a certain type of person buying this. <laughs> I think you'd get people that just straight up love gadgets, and mm. you'd get the people that have calculated the savings that they will get on their water bill and on their laundry and all of those sorts of things. So you get down to like justify the show it, absolutely, <laughs> and you'd also get people that you know are spending a lot of time traveling you know we, we, obviously not a lot of people are traveling around the world much at the moment but if you're on an extended road trip the last thing that you want to be filling your boot with is spare t-shirts so yeah. i think that there's a there's a certain market for this to have this as a travel implement that you just have in your suitcase for when you're on the road josh has this sort of thing been around for a while I don't know if it's been around for a while. I don't know. I've never sort of seen anything like this before. I, I, I'm actually a little bit sold on it now that Ray mentioned the um, the travel the travel factor. I, you know, it's something that slipped my mind because I haven't really been on any extended trips like many other people in quite a while. So, um, I, I you know, I think it may have a place. Uh, you know, they may encounter some, uh, you know, pushback from from big washing machine that might try and <laughs> stop it from happening. But I love we'll this. Sorry, sorry. Who do we think big white good is? Here? Unilever, definitely <laughs> Unilever. Fisher and Pike. <laughs> the gangsters known as Fisher and Pike. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. That is, I, I, you have managed to take me from high scepticism 
to just bewilderment. And, and in terms of the arc that I can go on in the show, that's pretty good because I started with bewilderment at NFTs and I stayed there at the end. Um, that is all we've got time for on the show this week. Huge thank you to Josh Taylor from The Guardian. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me on again. The pleasure was entirely mine. And Ray Johnson from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast, thanks so much for being back on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was so lovely. Uh, if you enjoyed hearing Ray, you should definitely check out the Queens of the Drone Age podcast. It's just like this, only I'll be honest with you, in many ways it's much better. Oh, stop. <laughs> with that, I shall leave you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Download This Show and I will catch you next week with more of the week's media, technology and culture. My name's Mark Fennell. Goodbye. Goodbye.